Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Trish, your bartender for today. And I'm Sloan, your crime tender for today. And today we're going to be talking about a case that kind of hits close to home for Sloan. Very close to home for me. It is the Pearl High School slash Luke, what's his last name? It's the Pearl High School shooting slash Luke Woodham case. This took place in Mississippi a few months before Columbine, and there was kind of a reference in the Columbine letters to the Pearl High School shooting. So while Columbine is the one that everybody remembers because it was a lot more tragic than this case, this is kind of what, at least what I was raised knowing, this was kind of like the first school shooting. It was always that that story that the adults, the teachers told, and it happened in our own backyard. So um, I thought I would take y'all along on the ride for that. So definitely go ahead, grab yourself a cocktail. You're going to need it. You're, <laughs> I don't say anytime uh, school shootings and that get involved, <laughs> like mentioned, uh, definitely, definitely goes over a little better with a cocktail in hand, but definitely grab your cocktail Settle in and buckle up for the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot. Beep beep. Welcome back to another round of drinks with your bartender for today, Trish. And today we're just doing what we're calling a basic bitch Cosmo because it is literally, it can be two steps or three. It just depends on what you want to make it. So what we did was we used the Deep Eddies Lime, which if you are not up to date on Deep Eddies, it will be your best friend for drinks because... The way those are flavored are just phenomenal. (laughs) They are amazing, especially like the lemon. You can literally just pour that like over ice or just chill it and it's a lemon drop. Like it's so easy. So like I said, we used the Deep Eddie's Lime. I did, I want to say I did like an ounce and a half on the video, but really you could do it to your heart's desire. And then I did a half ounce of peach schnapps, which you don't have to include the peach schnapps, but because of the cranberry that we used for this, I did the peach schnapps. So I did, like I said, 1.5 of the Deep Eddie's Lime, a half ounce of the peach schnapps, and then I did four ounces of our favorite cranberry juice, the cranberry peach is it warm up? No, no, it's cran peach. It's just yeah, it's yeah. cran peach. Sorry, I just know it's one that we really like. It's a like kind of sweeter cranberry. It's a lot lighter, and that. But it would also just be really good with the regular cranberry juice. Yes, and it would make a classic Cosmo without the extra like simple syrup and squeezing the lime and all that stuff. Like, just use your deep eddies, cranberry. Yeah, but. Like I said, for this recipe, we did the Deep Eddie's Lime, the peach schnapps, and then the cranberry peach. And you just kind of, you can either just kind of free pour it into a glass and give it like good mix, or you can shake it and pour it into a glass. Either way, it's going to be good. And it's just, like we said, it's a very basic, simple recipe. And it's, I mean, it's Cosmo. It's very easy good not too sweet not too tart well and i will say above and beyond whenever i've asked for recipe requests in the past everybody has asked for cosmo recipes so if you are looking for the classic cosmo recipe but you want to buy minimal ingredients deep eddies lime and cranberry flavored cranberry regular whatever you prefer This is the easiest Cosmo. We will do a classic Cosmo in the future, but this is our basic bitch Cosmo. Yes. So try it out. Let us know what you think. You can check out this recipe on TikTok, Instagram. It's all tequila she wrote. 
It will also cross post to Facebook, all that fun stuff. And then, yeah. Like I said, let us know what you think. If you have any recipe requests, let us know. If you have any ideas on how to use the Deep Eddies lime, let us know. And yeah, and we'll kick you off to the episode. Enjoy! Welcome back to another crime with your crime tender Sloan. Today, we are talking about the Pearl High School shooting slash Luke Woodham case. First and foremost, I really want to highlight that most of this comes from a really amazing, detailed, fairly accurate article article from the local news station, WLBT. I will have it linked in the show notes, but for the most part, that is where most of this information comes from. So all sources will be listed, as always, wherever you're listening in the little information box. The story of Luke Woodham starts with John P. Woodham Jr. and his wife, Mary Ann. They had a difficult marriage full of arguments. It was very stressful in their house. And their young son, Luke, bore witness to all of this. So Luke was in the sixth grade when his parents filed for divorce and his father became even more aloof and distant in his life. Without a father figure, Luke hardly felt like he could depend on his mother either. Their relationship in his eyes was devoid of love. He constantly told his friends and classmates and really anybody that would listen that he hated his mother. So a very tumultuous childhood. Luke was considered an outcast at school, a loner, if you will, for most of his life. He was the victim of constant bullying as early as kindergarten, but it got more physical and rough as the years went on. His classmates saw him as weird they called him chunky and tubby. And to that, I say felt. <laughs> like, like, I mean, I was the weird chubby, tubby kid in school, too. So felt. And it is hard to be bullied, especially whenever you don't have a home that you feel like you go home to to get the loving that you deserve as a human being. But anyways... So Luke's grades reflected those of a student who had just like completely given up with school and kind of life in general. And this started very early on, but he ended up sinking so low that he actually had to repeat his ninth grade year. His writing assignments also indicated a student with a very dark temperament. In one of his class assignments in which he was asked to describe what he would do if he were to live one day in the life of his teacher, Luke wrote that he would, quote, go crazy and kill all the other teachers, then slowly and very painfully torture all the principals to death. The last sentence of the essay read, I would get a gun and blow my brains out all over the doggone room and leave my house to Luke Woodham. Jesus. And that is the essay that he turned in for a grade. I'm sure that made a very interesting read for that teacher. (laughs) Big sip for me. His home life wasn't much better, though. Marianne worked multiple jobs as a single mother, trying to make it, trying to pay the bills, doing the damn thing, hustling, you go, girl. But unfortunately, that meant that she didn't really have a lot of time left over to devote to her son. And, you know, can't really blame her. Can't really blame her on that front, whenever you have all those jobs. However, when she did have time off, she tended to spend it with her friends and like going out, clubbing, to eat, all that kind of stuff. So I can understand definitely how Luke would feel like he was not anybody's first choice. Yeah. So Luke was left home all alone, often. And he would later claim that Marianne blamed him for her divorce, as well as her strained relationship with Luke's brother slash her son, John Woodham III, who was eight years older than Luke. So, like, once again, just really tough spot for a, a child to be in. Because at this point, he is still a child. We're t- ninth grade here. Yeah. The one bright spot in his young life... From everybody, from like everybody at school, what they remembered. The one bright spot in his young life was his short-lived romance with Christina Menifee. At first, they became very close friends before trying to date, and Luke very quickly confessed that he loved her more than anything on the earth. I actually had someone to love, and someone that loved me for the first time in my life is what he said. Looking back on that, 
they were only together for like a month. So whenever I say he very quickly confessed his love, he very quickly confessed his love for her. He also became very controlling. (laughs) Blooper. Luke also became very controlling of Christina, not wanting her to spend time with her other friends, which were abundant. He, because she was just this bright, bubbly, young, lovable person. And her father even said, like he, she hung out with Luke because she felt bad for him, and she gave him a chance at dating because she felt bad for him. So she was just like the complete opposite end of the spectrum from him. So he didn't want her hanging out with her friends, and he made it clear that he just wanted Christina for himself and himself only. Of course. Christina also told her friends and family that she thought it was strange that Marianne would accompany them on the three to four dates that they actually went on in their short relationship. They would go to, like, McDonald's and the movies. And granted, they were 14, 15 at the time, so somebody had to drive them and drop them off and whatnot. But I, too, find it a little odd that Marianne would tag along on the dates when from what Luke says, she couldn't be bothered to spend time at home alone with him. Yeah. So that doesn't make sense to me, but between Marianne's possessiveness over her son, Luke suffocating Christina in the relationship, Christina decided to end everything after a very short month of being together. But Luke was absolutely devastated. He said, I didn't eat. I didn't sleep. I didn't want to live. He became suicidal, going as far as sticking a gun inside his mouth. But all of that would change when he would meet Grant Boyette. Grant was a few years older than Luke, and he's, he was described as painfully thin with bony arms, severe cheekbones, and sunken eye sockets and jet black hair. So this is like 1997, 1996-ish. Yeah. I'm thinking, you know, like the grunge rocker type. And that's exactly what he was. But also, he had a very good reputation. And his family were was like well-known and beacons of the church. and Or beacons of the community. But like they were also very involved with their church. So he put on a front or represented his real self however you want to look at it he had a dual life let's put it that way so he had this one life at school where he's like this rocker dude and then he has this other life at home where he's the good old christian boy goes to sunday school checks all the blank all the blanks checks all the boxes checks all the boxes you get what i'm saying his Sunday school teacher even said that he was a quite quiet polite and christian boy But as I said, in reality, he was living a double life. So his friends knew Grant to have a temper. He would sometimes grab them by the neck if they made him angry, saying things like, don't make me do something I don't want to do. I would kick him in the balls. (laughs) I would kick him so hard. Like, I am your friend and you're holding me up against... Anyways. Grant also had a fascination for Hitler. Specifically, his influence over large groups of people. It's never a good sign. Never a good sign. Taking the words right off my screen. As well as the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche, Nietzsche, who is known for his publication called The Gay Science. And that tells me everything that I need to know about all of that. Yeah. About the philosopher and Grant. That's all I need to know. Grant would go on to form a group of misfits, the kids that were picked on and bullied at school, and they called themselves, quote, the Croth. The TikTok just popped in my head. And they call themselves the Guardians of the Galaxy. (laughs) (laughs) What a bunch of (laughs) a-holes. I'm telling you that if these boys were in high school right now, they probably would have made that TikTok. They absolutely would have made that TikTok. But yeah, so they called themselves The Croth. And Grant claimed the name was from his real father, Satan. Oh. And Grant referred to himself as the master of high demon activity. But he's the good Christian boy, remember? Oh, yeah. But his real father is Satan. Okay. Connect the dots there for me. Grant definitely took this group way too seriously. He claimed 
that once you were in, you were in because you knew too many secrets about the group and you couldn't leave. <laughs> it was a life or death situation. And to that, I'm like, you're in high school. <laughs> it's, it's not that serious. It's not that serious. But Luke says that he didn't really know much about Grant or the Croth whenever they first became friends. Friends. I said that weird. Friends. Friends. <laughs> he saw an opportunity for companionship and he wanted it because the last person or the only other person in his life that has ever loved him was Christina for that short month. So when Grant offered Luke an invitation to join the group, there was only one answer. Of course. Fuck yes. <laughs> let's do this thing did we just become best friends right yep life in the croth was anything and everything that luke dream dreamt of he has six new friends to hang out with all the time they play video games they listen to music they read books they discuss philosophy and they role play specifically like star wars role play for the most part just to give you a kind of idea of yeah what group we're talking about of what because role-playing can be a lot of different things. So, Star Wars is what we're talking about here. <laughs> Most of the time, they were at Luke's house because Mary Ann was rarely home in the afternoons. At first, this friend group was beneficial to all involved. And Luke even went from failing the ninth grade again to reading books in astrophysics in a very short amount of time. Okay. Once Luke was in, Grant let him in on a secret. That he prayed to Satan. He told Grant, Satan's chosen you to be a part of my group. You have the potential to do something great. It's kind of important to know what time period we're talking about here because this is, once again, coming in after the Helter Skelters. Yeah, this is like... Satanic panic, 80s, 90s, especially in the Deep South. So that's another reason that this case was a whole big thing down here. If Luke ever doubted what Grant told him about Satan and his power, one event would change his mind forever. According to Luke, there was one boy, a friend of a friend named Danny, who regularly talked down to him, and Luke didn't like this, so he went to Grant for advice. Grant went over to Luke's house, and they opened the... Uh, I'm going to butcher that name. The Book of the Dead is what it translate to, translates yeah. to. Um, but it's a book that's filled with myths and rituals, and Grant used it to cast a spell... A, why am I saying my E's like that right now? Grant, You're reverting <laughs> back to your southern roots. <laughs> Grant used it to cast a spell on Danny, but Luke messed it up. Oh. <laughs> while, I'm well, messing up my, while I'm messing up my accent, Luke fucked up the curse. <laughs> when Grant was reading the spell, Luke was thinking of Danny's friend Rocky. Oh, no. Not Danny. So what did Rocky do to you? Absolutely nothing. The next night, Luke was with a friend at his house when Danny showed up to tell him that Rocky was dead. He was struck by a vehicle and cut... There he goes again. <laughs> and killed while walking across Lakeland Drive. And to me, this is kind of like a big eye roll moment because Lakeland Drive is kind of like our airport boulevard here. So it's busy ass street. It's a very busy ass street. And yes, this was two decades ago and it's a lot busier now. But still, this is like one of those two uh, to three lanes on each side. It leads from the city of Jackson through all the suburbs. Like, yeah. you are absolutely insane for trying to cross Airport Boulevard on a bicycle, much less walking on your two feet. Yeah. There are not really crosswalks until you start getting to the suburbs. So, not only was he trying to cross this busy-ass street, and yes, it was at night, but he was dressed in black. And it probably was not busy at that time of night. But it still was, it's not a smart idea. It's not a safe place to cross. And he was struck by a vehicle and died on impact. So the police classified this as an accidental death. But Luke knew to his bones that the spell had worked. And Luke Woodham was now a firm believer in sat Satanism. Of course. But back to life in the croth. Luke was quickly finding himself in the inner circle of things, and other members suspected this was because Luke was easier for Grant to control. The group believed that Grant had power to summon demons, and Luke was a, quote, prime target, end quote, for Grant's demons because 
Luke was evil-minded. The mantra of the Croth was, we can't move forward until all of our enemies are gone. And for Luke, his number one enemy was Christina Menifee. Grant regularly told Luke that he needed to kill her. That way he'd never have to see her again. Or you can just move on, dude. It's common practice. It's a common practice. Or you could just wait until you go off to college or you stay at home and she goes off to college. Right. There's easier ways. Agreed. In April of 1997, Luke's diary had an interesting entry. And it said, On Saturday of last week, I made my first kill. The victim, in Luke's words, was a loved one, followed by the graphic retelling of how he and an accomplice an accomplice, we can all assume it's Grant, and it was later on confirmed Grant, but I know y'all were already saying it's Grant. I'm going to go and tell you it was Grant. So Luke and Grant tortured Luke's pet dog, Sparkles the Shih Tzu, to death. They took Sparkles into the woods, stuffed in a book bag, and began beating her. He noted that her howls sounded almost human-like, which made the boys laugh and began hitting her harder. Not the puppy. Yep, unfortunately. Um, Sparkle's bones were then broken before they set her on fire. And the abuse would finally end when Luke threw the dog, still trapped in the book bag, into the pond. And they watched the bag sink. He said it was a true beauty. It makes me so sad. We're both animal people. I'm definitely I'm a bigger dog. I'm picturing my yeah. puppy, like my parents' dog. Yeah. And also, that's, you know, a major red flag, killing yeah. animals. So, I mean, there's just a lot going on with that. But anytime there's an animal harmed, it it squeezes my heartstrings. It yeah. reminds me I still have a heart. <laughs> So, over the summer, the Croth began concocting a plan to terrorize Pearl High School, the school that has terrorized them. At one point, they envisioned setting off fires in the school, cutting off the phone lines, and then targeting students on their hit list. Another plan was to start shooting students after the tardy bell rang first thing in the morning. Then came the final plan. Luke was assigned as the assassin, and he was to go into the Pearl, into Pearl High School and open fire. Then he was to leave and target the junior high school, which is only a few miles away. And after, the Croth were to meet up in Jackson, and from there they were going to drive to New Orleans before heading to Mexico. And from Mexico, they were going to catch a boat to Cuba. Okay. Some of the Croth members thought these outlandish plans were make-believe, like the role-playing games they participated in on, on like, game nights, on hangout nights, and all that stuff. So they didn't think it was actually going to, like, happen. They did not think that anybody was being serious about this. Okay. But in the mind of other Croth members, it wasn't simply just talk. I mean, you do have two... Pretty dangerous boys, yeah, heading up this group. So I can understand how, like, it kind of mentioned how Luke was on the inner circle. So I can understand how the guys that were more on the, I guess, outer circle would think. They thought it was, like, something edgy to be in. Yeah, they they just thought that they were just doing this for shits and giggles. While the inner circle is like, nah, man, this is the fucking plan. We're fucking doing this. We're taking all these bitches out. You know, so that's kind of how I envision this thing happening. On September 30th, 1997, Luke was on the phone with Lucas Thompson, one of the Croft members, when he whispered, I'm going to kill my mom in the morning. He was whispering because Marianne was home and he did not want her to hear him. Lucas remembers that Luke sounded strangely calm and even described to him how he was going to do it. He told him that he was going to stab her to death. Lucas didn't believe at all that Luke would follow through with this. And when he went to bed that night, he didn't think Luke was capable of doing such a thing. So, like, I mean, he tossed it over in his head, but he was like, nah, that shit ain't gonna happen. I ain't worried about it. 
So he just went to bed. Meanwhile, Luke is at home plotting and preparing for the next day. He started by unplugging the landline in his mom's room. God, do you remember landlines? Right? It was like <laughs> how easy it was to be like, oh, no phone calls. <laughs> See, and uh, let me finish this and then I'll get to finish my thought. But so he unplugged the landline in his mom's room, hiding it in the closet in the kitchen so she wouldn't be able to call 911. But what I was going to say is, like, growing up with this story for so long, I don't feel like this was that long ago. Right. But then researching the case, looking at the grainy pictures, <laughs> reading about the landlines. Yeah, anytime I pull up things that are, like, they basically take place in the 90s and that, I was like, that wasn't that long ago. And then you look and you go, well, fuck. <laughs> I was six when this happened. <laughs> what, and this I'm, was I'm about to be 31, 97. I was probably like seven or eight because I was, yeah, I was in first grade. Yeah. You would have been going on eight, mm -hmm. like seven. Yeah. 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 It's just an odd moment where I feel very old. <laughs> it is what it is. So the next morning on October 1st of 1997, 1997. Marianne Woodham woke up at 5.30 a.m. just like every other day, and she got ready for her morning jog. As she walked down the hallway, Luke appeared and began striking her with the baseball bat. Oh. The blows landed on her face, one hitting right below her right eye, another hitting her right cheek, and the next blow broke her jaw. Somehow, Marianne got away from Luke and made it back to her room, and she was able to shut the door only for Luke to break the door down. But there she found herself on the bed with her son stabbing her over and over again with an old hickory butcher knife. Altogether, she suffered seven stab wounds and 11 slash wounds. The slash wounds on her palms and fingers were characterized as defensive posturing injuries. So it was very clear that she tried to fight him all. Yeah. And three of the seven stab wounds were proved fatal. One to her right lung, one to her left, and one to her heart. After stabbing his mother to death, Luke placed a pillow over her face, which is commonly viewed as a sign of regret, remorse. Yeah. He covered her up, and then he sat down at the kitchen table and wrote out his manifesto before he grabbed a gun and headed for the high school. Luke then drove his mother's Toyota Tercel. I'm bad with cars. I was like, mm, uh. That's one of the things I don't know. Cars. Anyways, his mother's Toyota to Pearl High School. He got out of the car wearing a trench coat to conceal the rifle he was carrying. He entered the high school through the main entrance into the commons area, which is like this large open area that the kids would wait for classes to start at the beginning of the day. Mm -hmm. And once the bell rang and they would go off to classes. The staff would turn this into the cafeteria, roll out the tables and all that kind of stuff. So it was a multi-purpose, just big atrium, uh, not a, not a, no wrong word, but just like this big area. Yeah. Yes. The commons. Most high schools have something similar to it. Jeff Cannon, the assistant band director at the time was on duty in the commons that morning. Basically he was in oh, charge of band director. I was like, basically, he's in charge of babysitting three to four hundred teenagers first thing in the morning. No fucking thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no thank you. I do not want your job. But as he was scanning the crowd, he noticed Luke Woodham was entering the doors of the commons for the second time that morning. The first time he came in, he came in to give his manifesto to Justin Sledge, another member of the cross. Mm-hmm. And Jeff also noticed that Luke's long trench coat was slightly out of place, too. Because, once again, this is October 1st, and I get that that's fall for most people in America. It is not by <laughs> any means cold here. I didn't know. You would die of a heat stroke in a freaking trench coat until about the end of December. December, yeah. The end of December. Maybe January. You get a random cold front. To give you a false winter and then it's fucking 70 again. And I even looked up, I went on our good old friend Google. -A. 
Google and I looked up the weather for this day and the high was 70 degrees yeah and the low was like 40 and that was going to be at three o'clock in the morning so rest assured he was sweating his ass off in that trench coat Jeff wrote it off as a fashion statement though because it was the era of like Nirvana and Nine Inch Nails and grunge and all that stuff and that's something that we had already kind of discussed earlier so he wrote it off as a fashion statement and just kept watching over the commons. At 8.06 a.m., the first shot was fired at Christina Menifee into her lower back at point-blank range. Oh. She passed away immediately. Christina was Luke's ex-girlfriend. Jeff Cannon, our professional babysitter, immediately started looking for the source of the gunfire. He initially thought it was just an ROTC member that accidentally fired one of their rifles. Did y'all have ROTC, I'm sure? We did not, but we were also just, like, a very small town in Ohio. (laughs) Okay, so, well, ROTC is just, like, literally a pre... Yeah, yeah. it's it's just, like, a a pre-military thing, so, um, he thought that that's what was happening, is that it was one of their guns and it accidentally went off. Instead, he ended up making eye contact with Luke again and very quickly put the pieces of the puzzle together. Jeff began yelling, ordering all of the students to run. Lydia Dew, who was Christina's best friend, was standing there face to face having a conversation with Christina whenever she was shot. So whenever Christina was shot and she went down, she was Lydia was left face to face with Luke. Before she could even try to make a run for it, he shot her too. Lydia lived long enough to speak with a teacher that tried to come and help her, but she passed away due to her injuries pretty quickly. Luke later confessed that he didn't know why he shot Lydia, a girl he remembered as, quote, ray of happiness, sunshine, and joy. I don't know why you would fucking shoot her either. This little son of a bitch. (laughs) Um, He said... After shooting Christina and Lydia, Luke, in his own words, just snapped. It's like I was there, but I wasn't. And he just kind of opened fire from there. The next target was Stephanie Wiggins, a sophomore, and she took a bullet to the hip, shattering it. She made a full recovery after multiple surgeries and extensive physical therapy, though. So that's that's something. Um, Jerry safely was struck in the leg while trying to protect his girlfriend, Luke walked over to Jeff after Luke walked over to Jeff after shooting him and apologized as he was bleeding out on the floor. Oh Jerry, I'm sorry, I didn't recognize you. So sorry. Would have aimed at someone else. <laughs> what? Mm-hmm. But yet you don't you don't remember, you know, just after you shot the two. Yeah, he said he snapped. But Luke admitted later that he thought Jerry was the mayor's son, whom Luke had wanted to shoot for added shock value to the whole situation. Alan Westbrook was running away from Luke when he tripped. Luke approached Alan lying on the floor and shot him multiple times in the back. Jeff Cannon remembers seeing Alan lying there and it looked as if someone had tried to debone the meat off of a deer. Oh my god. And I know that that sounds horrible, but once again, we're talking about Mississippi this week, and hunting is just a way of measuring. Yeah. (laughs) It is what it is. So, I do apologize if that was a little much for y'all, but Mississippi born and raised, that's a normal thing around there. Luke missed Alan's vertebrae by less than an inch, but he was left paralyzed for several months after the incident. I'm sure. Right. Most of the shots fired from the rifle hit the ground, sending shards of tile from the floor and transforming them into projectiles, which flew into the bodies of fleeing students. One student described the scene in the commons. People were lying everywhere, bleeding. Everybody looked dead. After firing multiple rounds, Luke's rifle jammed. And after a short time of fooling with a gun, he gave up and ran out of the school. When Luke was out of sight, Jeff Cannon began to follow a blood trail leading from the commons to the band hall. There, he found three of his band students who had been hit with fragments from the fallout. But they were all safe other than that. Yeah. So, while the shooting was taking place, then-assistant Joel Myrick was running out of the school towards his truck to retrieve his Colt 45 automatic. Once he was at his vehicle, he quickly loaded the gun and he ran towards the entrance of the commons. 
And something to note here is that he used to be in the National Guard as a combat unit commander. So he's pretty well equipped to handle a situation like this, I would say. Yeah. Once there, he witnessed Luke coming out of the doors and he screamed for Luke to stop. But Luke continued towards his car and got in. So Luke climbed into the car, closed the door, and the closing of the door kind of snapped Joel Myrick into action. Because he knew that if Luke was to escape... The elementary school was just a few miles away, which is where Joel's son was. That was also where my best friend Robin was. That's a, that's like my personal tie to this case. My best friend was in kindergarten when this happened, and she remembers her mom, who was a math teacher at the high school when this happened. Her mom left all of that and came and checked her out of school, and my best friend to this day like still remembers her mom covered in blood coming to pick her up. Ugh. So, th this case is really, really close to home for me. Because we almost lost our mama Linda that day. Yeah. Anyway, so Joel knew that the elementary, the elementary school was right down the road. The junior high was right down the road. He could really go and do a lot more destruction and harm. And so, he needed. Joel knew that he needed to stop Luke. While Luke was trying to get away... He got stuck behind another car parked at a stop sign. Luke honked at the driver in front of him. He backed up and then he passed the vehicle in his way. And as he continued down the road, Joel stood yards away pointing the gun at the coming car. It's also important to note here that Luke was definitely young, but he was also a very inexperienced driver. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Um, he, he didn't even have his driver's license at 16 years old. Uh -oh. So, he had unknowingly left the emergency brake oh on. Oh, God. <laughs> Leaving tire marks. Just ruining the, the whole car there, dude. <laughs> Just <laughs> leaving tire marks everywhere. All the way from his home up to the school <laughs> and on his way out. So, being the unskilled driver that he was, when he saw Joel Myrick facing him with a gun... Luke swerved off the road, lost traction on the dew-soaked grass, and kind of came to just a complete stop in the embankment. Joel yelled, don't move or I'll blow your head off. As Joel approached in the car, he noticed Luke's crooked glasses and exaggerated breathing as if he were about to explode with the rifle in the seat right next to him. While still aiming a, p a pistol at the teenager, Joel ordered him to get on the ground. And as Luke laid there, Joel asked him, why are you killing my kids? Luke responded, the world has wronged me and I couldn't take it anymore. The world does not owe you shit. Right? <sighs> okay. So a police officer soon came out and took Luke away. And in Luke's jacket pocket, they found a bounty of unused bullets. It was while he was being booked that one of the officers noticed a large cut on Luke's palm. And when he asked Luke what had happened, Luke paused for a moment before calmly stating, That happened while killing my mom. She's probably dead by now. Jesus. Just casually. Yeah. As news of the shooting made its way around the city, Joel Myrick and Jeff Cannon both described the agony of watching the parents of students as they crowded around the school, wanting desperately to know if their children were okay. One of the parents in the crowd was Lydia Dew's mother. Joel Myrick made eye contact with her, took her by the hand, and then led her into the school to be with her daughter. At Lydia's funeral two days later, her mother gifted Joel with one of her daughter's rings. So that was a nice little sweet silver lining. Mm -hmm. The community, as well as the country, was in a state of shock after Luke Woodham's attack on Pearl High School. The school canceled classes for the duration of the week, and in the aftershock, Grant Boyett was trying to distance himself from his friend. He told a reporter that he sometimes played video games with Luke, and he would describe him as very intelligent and a lover of philosophy. <sighs> Meanwhile, Justin Sledge, another fellow Croth member, took a different approach using any opportunity to attempt to explain the inner workings of Luke's mind. The day of the shooting, J Justin sat down with an exclusive interview with WLBT's Maggie Wade. I know her. <laughs> I know her. I feel like Buddy the Elf. Santa, I know him. I know, him. <laughs> I know Maggie Wade. Um, 
but he sat down with Maggie Wade and he was wearing a suit, tinted glasses. And to me, he really looked like Justin Timberlake. <laughs> like he had that hair sort of going on, but he, he yeah, he kind of looked like a Justin Timberlake to me. And he admitted that Luke had handed him the manifesto minutes before the rampage. And then he proceeded to read parts of the manifesto on the news. So I'm going to read a little excerpt of it here. I am not insane. I am angry. The world has shit on me for the final time. I am not spoiled or lazy, for murder is not weak and slow-witted. Murder is gutsy and daring. I killed because people like me are mistreated every day. I did this to show society, push us and we will push back. I suffered all my life. No one ever truly loved me. No one ever truly cared about me. I only loved one thing in my whole life, and that was Christina Menifee. But she was torn away from me. I tried to save myself with, but she never cared for me. As it turns out, she made fun of me behind my back while we were together. And all throughout my life, I was ridiculed. Always beaten. Always hated. Can you, society, truly blame me for what I do? Yes, you will. The ratings wouldn't be high enough if you didn't. And it would not make good gossip for all the old ladies. But I shall tell you one thing. I am malicious because I am miserable. The world has beaten me. Wednesday 1st, 1997 shall go down in history as the day I fought back. At this time, Grant, say what you will when you are through. I ask you to read them section 125 of the gay science, the Mad Men. Grant, see you in the holding cell. Grant, who doesn't know him that well, you know. <laughs> that. But just from that little excerpt, I think we can all understand why... Um, other school shootings have blamed this school shooting yeah. for why they've happened. And at the end of the day, it's a huge problem in this country that we need a solution for and we need a solution for fast. And I'm not saying that I have the solution, but you can clearly like fill the hurt, but that doesn't mean that you should kill people. Yeah. So, Justin said Luke's assault on the high school was not solely due to his breakup with Christina, but that it was instead a scream of sheer agony that if you can't pry your eyes open, if you can't do it through pacifism, if you can't show through display of intelligence, do it with a bullet. Basically, get their attention however you need to get their attention. Yeah. At a candlelight vigil for the victims the next day, Justin told attendees that soon that Luke simply went mad because of society and because of erratic behavior at the vigil, Justin ended up being suspended from school for five days following this. Yeah. So in the interrogation room, and I will have a video of this posted linked, whatever you call it. But in the interrogation room, Luke Woodham was dressed in a black t-shirt, dark pants without shoes, sitting very casually with one leg propped on top of the other while being read his Miranda rights by Aaron Hirschfeld, uh, Pearl Police Detective. What followed in his recorded confessions was a roller coaster of emotions from the 16-year-old killer. He began with the mur murder of his mother, Mary Ann Woodham, saying that he placed a pillow over her head and stabbed her to death. He told the detectives, She always never loved me. She always told me I wouldn't amount to anything. She always told me that I was fat and stupid and lazy. The smarter I got, the more she hated me. But then moments later, Luke seemingly expressed regret for what he had done, saying, I didn't want to kill my mother. I do love my mother. It's just I wanted revenge on Christina. He told investigators that the only way he could figure out how to get the gun to school to get revenge was by killing his mother and taking her car. When the detectives asked, why didn't you just tie her up instead? He said the thought never crossed his mind. When discussing Christina and his confession, Luke immediately choked up and he told the detectives, I got her right in the heart. He said inaccurately of where he had shot his ex-girlfriend. He shot her in the lower back. I was like, sir, your, your heart's higher. Yeah. Luke said that after their breakup, Christina would flirt with guys and then tell Luke about who she had found attractive. He said, it just gets to you. I loved her and she didn't care. He said as his lips began to quiver. He then told detectives what he did at the school, recalling first handing his manifesto to Justin Sledge, telling him to give it to Grant. And then he said, I think I hit Stephanie Wiggins. I think I might have hit her right in the butt. 
Alan Westbrook was targeted because he was one of Luke's bullies. And he said, I don't know if I killed him or not. Luke had written a will in the manifesto given that he thought he was going to be killed following the shooting immediately. He also wrote it in the hopes that someone would remember him. He told the cops, I guess the world's going to remember me now. I'm probably going to get pretty famous. Laybarf. In Luke's own words, he was not insane and knew what he was doing. He was just, quote, really pissed, end quote, at the time. Okay. If I did something so drastic every time I was really pissed, <laughs> oh. <laughs> I would have been in jail a long time ago. <laughs> a long time ago. It didn't take long after the shooting took place that police found out about the croth. And as authorities pieced together who was a part of this group, investigators began plucking members out of their classrooms at Pearl and started asking them questions about what they did and did not know about the shooting. Grant was the only one not at the high school at the time because he was down the road at Heinz Community College. Remember, he's a few few years older than these other kids. Oh, yeah. He's the only adult. Mm-hmm. Five days after the shooting, the six remaining members of the Croth were arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit murder. So, fast forward to the trial. Luke Woodham actually had two separate trials. One for the school shooting... And another for the murder of his mother. Neither his father nor his brother would attend either of his trials. So he once again stood all alone for another portion of his life. Which to me kind of helps prove the defense a little bit. But whatever. The Marianne trial took place in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And the school shooting trial was held in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Both are about an hour and a half out of Jackson, Pearl area. And uh, they're just, like, in opposite directions. Like, one is northeast and the other is southeast-ish. But in the trial for the murder of Mrs. Woodham, Luke weaved a web of reasons as to why he had committed such heinous acts, laying most of the blame at the feet of Grant Boyett. Of course. He went into the genesis of their friendship and described the Rocky incident and how, after he and Grant started a satanic group, crazy things started happening. Luke accused Grant of being the one to kill Sparkles. He also said Grant has had assigned each member of the Croth a demon to do his bidding. According to Luke, he woke up on the morning of October 1st and had seen the demons. These demons told him that he would be nothing if he didn't get to the school and kill those people. While hearing the voice of Grant in his head, he lifted the knife above his mother's body, closed his eyes, and, quote, followed myself, end quote. Upon opening his eyes, he discovered his mother dead. That's all I know. Then he proceeded to cry on the stand. So, my question there is, you let Grant do the stabbing, but you still beat her in the face with a baseball bat. Right. There's still some responsibility on you, dude. There's a lot of responsibility that you need to take up, and he's just not taking it. It wasn't just Luke striving to tie Grant to his deeds. Luke's attorneys also made an effort to implicate Grant at every turn. They even tried to place Grant at the scene of the crime. Investigators had found a blood sample on the wall with an unknown follicle of hair stuck in it, and the hair was not couldn't be traced back to Luke or Marianne. So it's a questionable person that was in the room after the blood like yeah. the blood was wet whenever it was put there. So That was an interesting tidbit that I had never heard before. And I'm curious to know, like, if it's a sample that we would be able to test now with updated sciences. I mean, it's possible. Anyways, so during the trial, the defense brought on a psychologist from New Mexico who explained how he thought a 16-year-old boy could kill his mother and then commit a school shooting. Dr. Mick Jepson had conducted interviews with Luke months after the shootings, and he reported to the court that Luke told him of seeing demons starting in the summer of 1997, convenient, portraying him as red-cloaked beings with spikes on their heads and glowing eyes. To me, and I know this is not what the... To me, in my head, I see the Volturi. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I know their capes are black. (laughs) But, yeah. (laughs) But I see the Volturi in my head. 
Luke also told Dr. Jepson that the demons commanded him to kill people. So after a series of tests, Jepson came to the conclusion that Luke had problems with perceptual accuracy and reality. You don't fucking say. (laughs) And he also suggested that he had borderline personality disorder. It was also his opinion that Luke was a very psychologically disturbed youngster. Once again, you don't say. I was going to say, uh, you think? Exploited by Grant. Duh. Grant distorted Luke's reality, rendering him helpless to judge the appropriate behaviors. And I do agree with that assessment, but Luke should still be held accountable for his actions. Mm-hmm. The prosecution brought in their own psychologist to rebut Dr. Jepson, Dr. Chris Lott. Lott agreed that Luke definitely had behavioral issues. I think we all do. Yeah. But he didn't see the borderline personality disorder in him. Instead, he viewed Luke as having a narcissistic personality trait, uh, personality disorder. Someone who feels special and smarter than others. I don't think that he feels special, but I do think that he feels smarter than others. Yeah. Lot also interviewed Lucas Thompson, the friend, or a fellow Croth member that Luke called the night before everything happened. Lucas told Dr. Lott that Luke and Grant both viewed themselves as smarter than the other boys, to the point where they excluded members of the Croft, often. Lucas didn't get the sense that Luke was delusional. But Dr. Dr. Lott also testified that he didn't think Luke was actually seeing demons, nor was he under the influence of them. Quote, he's just, he's not right. He's not normal. He has problems. But he's not so ill that, in my opinion, he has any major mental disorders. End quote. The jury deliberated for about three hours on a very stormy Friday afternoon. They returned to a dark courtroom because the electricity was cut off because of the weather. And in the dark, Luke stared at the jurors as the verdict was read. Guilty. He was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of his mother. Luke was escorted out of the courtroom by a small army of police officers donning a bulletproof vest. Once he was outside, he was sworn by the press. One journalist asked him, Heaven or hell, where are you going now? Luke answered, I'm going to heaven now. This is God's will. God bless you all. But you were were just... You were just up Satan's asshole. Right? You were just... Like, months before... Okay. One week after that trial, the second trial began, where Luke was found guilty on two counts of murder and seven counts of aggravated assault for the school shooting. He was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences and seven 20-year sentences. It was at this trial that Christina Menifee's grandmother labeled Luke a genetic waste and accused the teenager of being responsible for initiating a chain of events across the country that wrecked havoc on our children. Both disagree and agree with her at the same time. Right? After being sentenced, Luke told the courtroom... I am sorry for the people I killed and hurt. The reason you do not see tears anymore is because I have been forgiven by God. Again. In February of 2000, Grant Boyett pleaded guilty to a charge of conspiracy after initially being charged with three counts of accessory to murder. Grant had to attend the regimented inmate discipline program at Parchman and served five years of supervised probation. The charges against the other Croft members were dropped at the request of D.A. John Kitchens at the time, who said their charges of conspiracy would be too difficult to prove. And that is my case on Luke Woodham and the Pearl High School shooting. Luke is still actively serving his sentence. I know that he has written to the governor at least once trying to get uh, clemency, and it was turned down. But other than that, he's just kind of living his life out in jail. And yeah, I do not. I think that Grant should have gotten more. Yeah. Like he pretty much just got probation for five years for being the one to instigate all of this. And no, he was not the one that pulled the trigger or anything like that. But the trigger, but you might as well have. Exactly. You made a plan. You took advantage of somebody. Yeah. And their weak state of mind. And yeah, I I agree 100% with Luke's trial and his sentencing and all of that. I do not agree whatsoever with Grant's. 
And I don't know the story well enough to say whether the rest of the boys should be charged. I don't think all of them should be charged, but I do think that maybe like one or two knew more than they admitted to. But for sure, Grant got off a whole lot easier than he should have. Yes. But I guess with that being said, we'll leave this heavy. Heavy case. Heavy, somewhat personal case for you. (laughs) And kick us off to the last call. Welcome back to another last call with your bartender, Trish. And after that case, (laughs) because... Whew, that was a, uh, something. <laughs> um, Heavy-hearted. Right. We're going to do a, um, a story about a Missouri man's, um, I guess, little bout of luck. And it's a news article I found that when I read it, I went, why has why that never happened to me? <laughs> So the title reads Missouri man wins 7 yeah $77,777 after accidentally buying wrong scratch off. What? Yep. Look, I get punished for buying a scratch off period. <laughs> He's rewarded for buying the wrong one? Right. So a man from Missouri won $77,777 from a scratch-off lottery ticket that he did not intend to buy. The unidentified lottery player accidentally selected a hot, a hot sevens ticket when he meant to purchase a different scratch-off game. He said he wasn't paying attention to the selected ticket and it was a fluke. Why are my flukes never that lucky? Same. So, he said, the man said he is still processing the win and did not spe- did not specify how he will use his winnings. You hide from needy-ass family members. <laughs> uh, I love my family, but um, <laughs> there's, there's, I would, I would definitely pay off my debts for sure. So then anything else I make is just my money. Yeah. Also, you got to think that money is taxed. So it's not like he gets completely all all that. Uh, He said that the fact that it happened at all is pretty crazy and it hasn't sunken in yet. And this like scratch off the hot seven scratch off was launched in February. And has a grand prize of 700 $77,000 and like $777. So it's like, it plays off the whole sevens things. Yeah. But I'm just like, well, hot damn. You literally, this is from April 4th, it says. So like, you literally got this, what, two months after it came out and you already won that? Be looking out for that on (laughs) on my trips to Florida and that. (laughs) we'll make a trip just for it right but my my family is one of those ones we love our little scratch off stuff and that when my sister drives from Oklahoma over you know they they stop in Texas because they have to drive through it and it takes forever but they stop in Texas they usually stop in Louisiana Mississippi like they try to stop everywhere and pick up the lottery tickets before they cross into Alabama because uh, we don't believe in funding us that way. No, we're going to just give our money to everybody else. (laughs) So, yeah. I saw that and I was like, well, why doesn't that ever happen to me? I think the most I've won is like $10. I've never won. (laughs) This one time I won at Bingo and they wouldn't let me win. (laughs) <laughs> they said I broke the rules. How'd you break the rules? Uh, we tore the ticket apart. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> but, yes. I did break the rules. Oh, Jesus. So, yes, I saw that, and I just, I was like, well, that sounds like a good last call. It will be a good one to, uh... Short and sweet little mood lightener. Yes. 
And I guess with that being said, thanks for hanging out with us today. Be sure to check us out every Tuesday and Friday we post. Um, we have all of our socials set up. It's all tequila she wrote. You got what? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that. TikTok. TikTok, yes. We also have our email, tequilashrote at gmail.com. Send us any case suggestions, cocktail recipes, last call ideas, anything like that. We have our Patreon set up too. It is Tequila She Wrote as well. You can subscribe for as little as $2 a month and get bonus content, ad-free episodes, and all that good stuff. Check us out over there if you're interested. Each tier gets more and more things available to them. Uh, we do have some merchandise available over there. Uh, that seems pretty cool. But we will see you next time. Have yeah. a good... <laughs> <laughs> well, Thanks see. for taking a ride on the Hot Mess Express. That's what it is. Toot, toot. <laughs> beep, beep. <laughs>